Well, good morning, church. December, December is here. Advent is here. Christmas is coming. Uh, the season of Advent, it starts on the fourth Sunday leading up to Christmas, and, and that is today, all right? So if you, guys, if you guys like the lights and the decorations, uh, you are welcome. Uh, if you don't like them, uh, we actually did not set them up, okay? So the church that, the church that owns the building, uh, the current church, they set up the decorations. We're kind of at their mercy for what they want to set up. But uh, however, we will take the credit just with none of the blame if you don't uh, like them. Uh, you'll also notice that we've got a new, a new drum shield, right? Uh, some people do not like drums, so we wanted Tim to have a bulletproof uh, barrier. Uh, at least I think that's what's going on up there, but uh, you'll notice that's a little different in here this morning as well. Uh, but this morning, it is, it is the start of Advent. And so because of that, we are going to step out of, excuse me, step out of our series preaching through the book of Mark, and we're going to enter these next four weeks into a series that we'd call We Believe. We Believe. And so this is going to be a little bit longer of an intro than usual, but hang with me. I feel like I need to kind of set up and prepare you for what the next four weeks are going to look like here as we, as we prepare for Christmas. So the word Advent, if you're not familiar with it, that's okay. Depending on your church background, you may or may not be familiar with it, but what it means is it means arrival, arrival. It is the season. The season of Advent is, is this season where we are celebrating and remembering the arrival of Jesus coming to earth. You know, when God put on flesh, you know, born as a baby in a manger, the angels, the shepherds, all the whole shebang, okay, and we're going to get to some of those nativity uh, uh, Bible passages in the next few weeks. But not only is it a celebration of the first arrival or advent of Jesus, but it is also a season where we are longing for his second advent, his second arrival, when he will return and he will right all the wrongs and he will make all things new. And so, yes, it, it, is, it is a season of celebration and anticipation, but it also is a season of longing as we await Christ's return. And often during the season of Advent, we like to celebrate how Jesus brings the world things like hope and how he brings the world things like peace and joy and love. But if we could be honest, a lot of times most Decembers don't feel like they are full of hope. A lot of Decembers don't feel like they're full of peace or joy or love, but instead they are full of consumerism. They can be full of despair. They can be full of greed and busyness and family arguments and tension. They can be full of chia pets, right? Like they're still selling those things. I don't, I don't understand, but, but uh, okay. But if we're not careful, we can get through this season of December, the whirlwind of it all, and we can just be at the end of December and think, what just happened to us? It was a whirlwind. Every night we had something scheduled, every weekend was booked, and we get to the end of it and we think, man, where was the hope? Where was the peace? Where was the joy? Where was the love, right? Cue the Black Eyed Peas, Where's the Love song. We didn't have it queued up. I'm just kidding. All right? But we get to the end of it, we think, what just happened to us? And so what I'm going to propose to us this morning is that over the next four weeks, in order for us to really experience hope, 
In order for us to really experience peace and joy and love, we're going to need to go back to the foundations of our faith, and we're going to really need to understand what we believe. What we believe. And so for the next four weeks, we'll be asking the questions, the question, what do we believe? Because we will see that what we believe about God is what will lead to hope. What we believe about God is what will lead to peace. And what we believe about God will lead to joy and to love. And so to help guide us in what we believe, not only are we going to be preaching the Bible, the Bible is mainly what's going to be guiding our times together, but in addition to that, we are also going to learn and recite together the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. Now, I realize just saying creed, uh, that might kind of freak some of you out or you're not sure how to handle that, right? If you grew up in more of a liturgical background where, where you, you recited creeds and prayers and you had readings, maybe it brings back kind of some, some feelings where it was just, you know, I don't have good feelings about that. It was just I was going through the motions. I, it was just lip service. I didn't really feel it. I was just following this tradition. So maybe some of you are kind of feeling that right now when you think about the Apostles' Creed. Maybe some of you, if you grew up in a, a more kind of a contemporary church or a Baptist church, uh, you're thinking, what in the world? Like, we're going to recite a creed? Like, is that even, are we allowed to do that and play drums in the same service? Like, is that, is this possible? Are we, are we breaking rules at this point? Why are we reciting a creed? And so everyone, take a deep breath. Yes, don't freak out. Let me clarify a little bit, okay? Now, first of all, reciting a creed, it's not like some hocus-pocus magical thing that, that just by reciting it, it's not going to save you, it's not going to change you. Nothing's going to happen by just reciting it with your lips, okay? We also don't believe that the creed is on the same level as Scripture, right? It doesn't carry the same authority that we say God's Word carries. We believe the Bible is the Word of God, and therefore Scripture alone carries the weight of authority with it. So I will not be preaching the creed, okay? I will be preaching God's word, but we are going to use the creed to point us to Scripture, to point us to some truths about God. The creed is not truth in and of itself, but it is leading us and pointing us to the truth of God's word. It's like, it's like the Cliff Notes version of some doctrine that we get from God's word, right? And I know some of y'all loved Cliff Notes. That's why you've got a high school diploma right now, right? So let me just for a second, uh, let me just for a second try to teach a little bit about the Apostles' Creed. And uh, it's not going to be an exhaustive teaching, but each of the weeks we're going to talk and explain a little bit more about the Creed, all right? Well, we get, first we get the word Creed from the Latin word which means I believe. I believe. So that's what the word Creed means, I believe. And that's how the Apostles' Creed starts out. It starts with I believe. And the Apostles' Creed was actually not written by the Apostles, as its name would suggest, uh, but it was written by the early church based upon the Apostles' teaching. And it's been around for a while. This isn't like some just new groundbreaking thing that is, is coming, you know, to a Christian bookstore near you, if those still even exist, right? Uh, but this, this is something that has been time-tested. It's been around for a while. And so it was a, the, a form of it was crafted around uh, 200 or the second century, essentially. And the form that we have now was finalized around 700 A.D. And so it's been around for a while. 
And the early church used the creed for a few different things. It used the creed to protect and guard against false doctrine, right? So it was a good summary, a good PowerPoint, a good Cliff Notes version of biblical doctrine. And so as new teaching and as new teachers would come in, they would use the creed to make sure that this wasn't false teaching or going against what God's word said. The early church also used the creeds as an evangelism and discipleship tool. All right. So when someone came to a saving faith in Christ, what would happen is that the church would often take them through this discipleship program. And what a lot of early churches did was they'd first teach someone the Ten Commandments. They'd then take them through the Lord's Prayer, and then they would teach them the Apostles' Creed. Right? So they would start with the Ten Commandments. They would make sure someone had an understanding about the moral law of God, that they would understand their own sin, that, that just like all of us, we have all broken God's law. So they'd start with the Ten Commandments. Then they'd take them through the Lord's Prayer. They'd say, hey, this is how you deal with sin. This is how you pray to God. This is how you confess it, right? So they, they taught people how to communicate with their Creator. And then they would take them through the Apostles' Creed, which is not an exhaustive set of beliefs of the Christian. Christian faith, but it is a good place to start. And so they would learn the creed, and then when they would be baptized, they would stand before the church, and the pastor would say, Christian, what do you believe? And they would proclaim to the church, I believe, and they would go through the Apostles' Creed. It was a proclamation that they were a Christian. It was a proclamation of what they believed. And so church, when we recite the creed together, not only is it a reminder of what we believe, not only is it a Cliff Notes version of the truths from God's word, but it is something that we proclaim together. And as we do, we are joining with Christians throughout history who have recited this. We are participating together and taking part in something that is much bigger than ourselves. I know this church is a fairly new church, but the capital C church is not new. It's been around for a while. And so not only was this then sort of a Christian's kind of pledge of allegiance to God, if you will, but it was also an act of rebellion against what the culture was telling them to believe. Okay, in the early church, when a Christian proclaimed the Apostles' Creed, it was considered an act of rebellion against Rome. It was a de declaration that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It was an act of rebellion against what the culture was telling them to, the, to believe. And so in the same way, for us, these next four weeks, we're going to recite the creed together, okay? It's not something that in the long run we're going to do every week. We might do it on occasion, but for the next four weeks when we recite it together, we're reminding ourselves of some truths from God's word. Excuse me. Wow, okay. Yeah, everyone okay? All right. Um, so not only are, are we are pledging kind of our allegiance to God, but we are also declaring kind of an act of rebellion against what the culture is telling us to believe. So, for example, uh, when we say we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we are saying we reject the belief that the world is an accident and without purpose. When we say that we believe Jesus is Lord, we are saying we reject that anyone else is. When we say we believe Jesus rose from the dead, we are saying we reject the belief that death is the end of the story. 
When we say we believe he will come to judge the living and the dead, we are also saying we reject the idea that when wronged, that we must take revenge or that we must grow bitter because we believe that Jesus is coming to right all wrongs. When we say we believe in the church and the communion of saints, we are saying we reject the idea that a Christian can flourish and thrive isolated from the body of Christ. And when we are saying we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are saying we reject the idea that we must live in guilt and shame over past failures. And when we say we believe in the resurrection and life everlasting, we are saying we reject that this life, the here and now, is all we have. And so church, I know this is the first time for us doing this. It might be a little awkward. Uh, let's just say, say, let's embrace the awkwardness a little bit. We're probably going to stumble through it. I'm going to say it at a different pace than you want to say it. And so we're just going to have to kind of feel this thing out. Uh, but I think it will be good for us in the long run. And so if you would stand with me right now, we are going to recite the creed together. If this is stuff that you are not sure, if you believe, please don't feel any pressure to participate. You can mouth the words if you want to, uh, but if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, uh, this is what you believe. I didn't throw anything to like catch you off guard or anything, all right? This is what you should believe. All right, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. That actually, you guys are really good at that, all right? You must have been practicing. Uh, that went better than, than expected. So thank you guys for participating in that. So we're going to walk through that. Even as you read that, you can just see, man, what, what a great kind of summary and PowerPoint of what we believe, including, including some great biblical truth. So right now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. And as you're turning there, we're also going to have the scriptures up on the screen that you can follow along as well. But as you're turning there, let me clarify what we are saying when we say, I believe, I believe. The earliest written manuscripts of the Apostles' Creed uh, were found back in 300 A.D. They were written in Greek. And this phrase, I believe, it uses a Greek phrase borrowed from the New Testament writers, which literally means, I am believing into God. I am believing into God. You see, many people in our English language would say the words, I believe in God. Lots of people have said that. Lots of people can say that. I believe in God. But Christians, when they come together, and they say, I am believing into God, which is very different, and we need to kind of tease that out a little bit because what it is getting at is this idea of something that is much more meaningful than just an intellectual acknowledgement of a truth, right? When we say believing into God, we are getting at the concept of what the Bible calls faith. Faith. So look now at Hebrews 11, 
verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now what that word faith means, it means it is a, it is a trust, it is a reliance, it is a dependence, and it is a confidence in God. It's more than just a knowledge about God. It's more than just knowing about him or having some thoughts about him. I mean, I can, I can look at my bed, and I can know that it will hold me when I lay down, right? I can think that it'll hold me when I lay down. Some of us maybe weren't sure after our Thanksgiving meals if it would hold, but, but we can, in general, you know, my bed's pretty sturdy. I can look at my bed, and I can say, hey, I'm pretty, I think, yeah, that, that will hold me. But faith is trusting it with all my weight and laying down on it and resting. That is what the Bible is getting at when it's talking about faith. It's not just to know. It's not just to believe about. It's to believe into. It's to trust and rest upon. So faith is more than just knowing something or having a thought about something. Now, certainly, though, biblical faith, while it's not just knowing something or just not knowing about something, it does require some knowledge, all right? Faith, true faith, saving faith does require some knowledge. God doesn't call us to a blind faith. I've heard it said that true saving faith, it really must pass through the mind and into the heart, right? A lot of people, it just sticks in the mind. It doesn't actually get to the heart, right? But when we put our trust, our reliance, our confidence in God, we don't turn off our brains, right? That's not what God calls us to. We are to be a a thinking people, a reasoning people, an intellectual people, right? And so true faith must have some knowledge about God, but it is more, it is more than just a knowledge about God. It is a knowledge that has gone to our hearts, And our hearts then being enabled by God to believe, then trust, rely, depend, and rest our full weight upon him. Look now at Hebrews 11. Now, starting in verse 1 again, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Hebrews chapter 11, it's often called the hall of faith because it goes through example after example of people who by faith pleased God, right? But, but notice how they pleased God. It does, it does throughout the chapter. You can read it later this week. It goes into some things that they did, but ultimately they did those things by faith. Notice, notice when you read this later on, notice how they were commended. Notice how they were declared right with God or justified by God. It was by faith, by believing into God, by resting upon God. The people of God have always been justified by grace through faith. So sometimes we've falsely thought that, hey, the people in the Old Testament, right, they were saved by works, right? The things that they did, they had to, you know, do these weird sacrifices, purification things. But now New Testament believers, we're saved, we know we're saved by faith, by believing and trusting Christ. Well, it's not true. The people of God from all time have always been justified and declared right with him by faith, right? By grace through faith. And so in the same way that we look back 
to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and trust that Christ's work on our behalf atoned for our sins. In the same way, the people of God before Christ came, they were by faith looking forward to Christ's coming. They were by faith through the sacrificial system, through the purification laws, through these types and shadows of Christ, they were by faith trusting that one day a Messiah would come, a Christ would come, who would accomplish their salvation for them. The people of God have always been justified by grace through faith, through faith. But not just a belief about God, but a belief in God, a trust, a reliance, a dependence upon him. Hebrews 11 goes on to say in verse 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Church, we must believe, believe. You see, Christianity, being a follower of Christ, it's not primarily about what you think Right? It's not primarily about what you think about God or what you know about God. It's not primarily what you do for God. It is primarily, first and foremost, what you believe about God. Christianity is, is, is not a, a religion or, or it's, you know, we are not a group of people that, that, that are defined by necessarily what we do or working for our salvation. We are primarily defined by what we believe. We believe that someone has already accomplished our salvation, that someone has done the work in our place. That is us trusting and believing that Christ is our Savior, Christ is our Lord. First and foremost, we need to understand what do we believe? What do we believe about God? And it's what we believe about God that will lead us to hope and to peace and to joy and to love. Well, what do we believe? Let's, let's think back to the creed, okay? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The, the creed in its entirety, it helps us understand uh, what the Bible teaches us kind of about God and that he is one God in three persons. So throughout the creed, you know, we're starting today with I believe in God the Father, but next week we're going to say I believe in God the Son, right, Jesus. Then later we're going to say I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's a doctrine called the Trinity, the Trinity, which, which blows our minds, right? It blows it. We can't get our mind around God because God's not a created thing. We didn't make him up. This is something that he's not like us. He's outside of us. He's bigger than us. So we can't get our mind around it, but we believe in one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all who are equally God, each having their, their distinct roles, and yet they are in such perfect fellowship and communion with one another that they are one God. I mean, if that gives you a headache, you know, join the club, all right? That blows our minds. And the first person of the Trinity is God the Father, God the Father. What a great and glorious God we have who tells us to call him Father, Father. Romans 8, verse 15. 
It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Father. Now I realize that some, some of us, some of you, thinking of God as Father, that maybe initially isn't a very comforting or joyful thing. Because maybe some of you, you have some wounds that your earthly father has left on your heart. Maybe some of you, your earthly father has abandoned you, maybe abused you, maybe neglected you. Maybe he, or maybe he wasn't that bad, but maybe he just really just wasn't around that much. Maybe he didn't really connect with you or, or show affection for you, didn't really you know, ever give you any, any words of affirmation. Maybe he didn't know how to communicate you very well, communicate with you very well, and so that's left some wounds on your heart. Or, or maybe some of you, you've had great dads, right, who are just always smothering you with love and affection. They were always by your side to give you guidance, give you input, and help guide you along the way of growing up and in your life. But listen, regardless of how bad your dad is or was, or regardless of how great your dad is or was, Listen, all earthly fathers fall vastly short of the goodness and the greatness of our heavenly father. They all do. Even the best of dads fall vastly short of the glory, the goodness, the love, the care of our heavenly father. And listen, your earthly dad will never fully satisfy the relationship that you were created to have with your heavenly Father. He never will. He won't. Don't put that weight on your dad that only God the Father is strong enough to hold. So many of us, you're going to see your dad this December, maybe. How about you give your dad some grace? How about you forgive him for past shortcomings? And how about you don't waste your life wishing for what you could have had and instead miss, and then miss out on the relationship that you can have with your heavenly Father, who is a perfect Father, who will never disappoint you, He will never abandon you, and He will never neglect you. Guys, listen, true faith in God our Father is the only thing that will lead to a hope that your father wounds, that your daddy issues can be dealt with and healed and redeemed. God, our heavenly father, enjoying him, trusting him, being in relationship with him, that is what gives us hope to heal the wounds of all the shortcomings of our earthly fathers. We believe in God the father, who not only is he a loving and caring father, but he is also almighty. We believe in God the Father Almighty, right? To say that God is Almighty is to say that He can and will do all that He intends. He can and will do all that He intends. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6 say this. It says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas 
and all the deeps. We believe that God is almighty. He is all-powerful. He can and will do all that he intends to do. His arm is not too short to save. His arms do not grow weak or tired. He is almighty. And we can have faith that what he intends to do, he will do. That what he said to do, he is powerful enough to come through and back that up. When we grow anxious, though, and when we grow fearful, and when we lose hope, we oftentimes forget that our God is almighty, that he can and will do all that he intends to do. Look back at Hebrews 11 with me. Hebrews 11, now in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, we trust that God the Father Almighty spoke the universe into existence. Right? Now, none of us were there for creation. All right? None of us are that old in here. We weren't there at the beginning of it all. Okay? And so because of that, there are many theories and philosophies that have come about as trying to explain how everything came from nothing. Right? Like how all this, everything in the universe, where did this all come from? And, and my goal this morning is not to get to, into the details of the creation account. My goal is not to develop an argument for intelligent design or, or talk about the age of the earth or anything like that, but I want to give us a big picture, a snapshot of what we believe, and then I want you to understand that all human beings, when you get down to it, when you get down to the core of the issue, you really have to believe in one of three things about the origin of life and the creation, uh, not, I guess not everyone would agree creation of the universe, but you have to get down to the, these three things to, to believe about the origin of life. So number one, you have to believe, this is your first option, you can believe that the world is self-created, right? Some people believe this, that the world kind of just created itself, that it, that it was self-created. You either then have to believe, if you don't believe number one, you have to believe number two, that the world is eternally self-existent, right? So even, even people, right, that believe kind of light and particles and things kind of combusted, that, that the Big Bang thing started, like at some point they have to believe that some of that matter was eternal, that it was self-existent, that it has always been there. Or number three, you have to believe that the world was created by something or someone outside of itself who is self-existent. And so as Christians, we reject the idea that the world was self-created. We reject the idea that the world is, is eternally self-existent, and we believe that the world and the universe, they were created by someone outside of itself who is self-existent. We believe we have a creator. And this is important for so many reasons, because where you believe you came from will greatly affect how you live and make decisions in life. The hope for the Christian is that we believe we have a creator, a creator. We believe that God created everything out of nothing by the power of his word. Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, 
and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Then verse 9, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Astronomers using the Hubble telescope, they estimate that there are somewhere, at least right now, between 100 to 200 billion galaxies. Not stars, galaxies, all right? And then in our galaxy alone, it's estimated that there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. I mean, can you imagine the glory of the creator of that kind of universe? And then even more, especially in this season, can you imagine the glory of that big of a God, that powerful of a God, that magnificent of a creator? Can you imagine the glory of that creator that he would enter into his creation, that he would come to save his people from their sins. But here's, here's the struggle. Here's the tension. Here's the angst that we feel. Listen, it is difficult to believe in the midst of an unbelieving world, right? Isn't it just so, it's difficult at times to believe while we're living in the midst of an unbelieving world. We want to believe. Like, like we, we want to believe that God is a loving, caring Father, but sometimes if we're honest, in our unbelief, we think He is like a distant dad, right? We want to believe that God is almighty, but then life happens, and, and then we start to doubt, and like, really, is He really powerful enough to do all that He intends to do? Like, we, we want to believe that God is our creator, and yet we can have days where we question, like, man, is there really even purpose to life? Is there really a designer with a plan in all this? Because it seems just like chaos. It seems like things are spinning out of control. Maybe this is just one big cosmic accident. And when human beings, when we remove creator from the equation, there are inevitable worldviews and philosophies that will develop from that. Nihilism is one of them. Nihilism is the philosophy that essentially believes God is dead, God doesn't exist, and only the nothingness remains. And therefore, life has no purpose, life has no mean meaning, there's only nothing. Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll close. No, right? That doesn't get a lot of play on the Hallmark Channel, right? But it is a popular belief and philosophy in the way that people are living their life, that God is dead, God doesn't exist, Creator has been removed, and therefore nothingness remains. There's no purpose, there's no meaning outside of ourselves. And I've mentioned this study to you before, but Princeton University did a, a documented study that showed a, a dramatic increase in the number of deaths among young adults and middle-aged adults in America. And what they had found was that there's been this dramatic increase in the suicide rate and in the overdose rate of middle-aged and young adults. And they concluded their study by one of the professors at Princeton saying that the study illustrates the sad reality that we are, what we are observing is an epidemic of hopelessness. An epidemic of hopelessness. We find ourselves living 
in the midst of an epidemic of hopelessness, which grieves, it grieves our heart. I don't know how it makes you feel, but, but I'm assuming it, it grieves your heart somewhat, and yet it also does sort of make sense, right? It is the logical conclusion if you start with the presupposition that there is no God, right? If, if there is not an eternal being that created the universe, if this is just a cosmic accident and only nothingness remains, if there's nothing beyond what we can see or feel or touch, then life has no meaning and life has no purpose. And then what we've seen is people then develop this hopelessness. They sink into despair. They try to numb it with substances and some tragically even take their own life in order to escape this nothingness and hopelessness. Or some people, they try to fight off the hopelessness and nothingness, right? They say, hey, I'm not going to despair. I'm not going to be discouraged. So, but they say, hey, if, the, if there's no you know, value or purpose outside of us, then, then we must create our own. Okay, so some people have tried to fight off the hopelessness and nothingness by creating their own values and purposes and meanings. And so they create these values amongst themselves and then they congregate with other groups of people so that, that have the same kind of values and purpose so that they can find security in the herd of that group of people who all have similar purposes and meaning. And then what happens is that group's ideology is like an idol that they worship. It essentially has taken the place of God in their life, and so that therefore they will do whatever they can to see that group's ideology prevail. It has taken the place of God in their life. It is now an idol. But unlike our God, false gods do not liberate and free people. False gods enslave them. And so what we've seen is these ideology idols that people have has not freed them or liberated them. It has actually enslaved them. So people have become enslaved to ideologies. People have become enslaved to political parties. Both sides. I'm not taking sides, right? Both sides. People have become enslaved to organizations and movements because they are fighting off the feeling of nothingness and hopelessness, and yet they are unwilling to believe that in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so look around you. Observe the world around you. You have masses of people feeling hopeless and despairing and trying to numb it with substances. And then you have other people trying to fight off the nothingness by, by creating this ideology idol and that if their policies are not moving forward, if their agendas are not successful, then they are crushed, they are wrecked because all that awaits them is nothingness if that idol does not prevail. But then, there's this quirky, kind of weird, often awkward group of people called the church who say, no, no, no. There is a creator. There is a designer. There is a purpose and a meaning to all of this. And this, this is what makes the celebration of Advent and the celebration of Christmas so unbelievably amazing. It's that the creator of the universe entered his creation, right? 
the creator of the universe who spoke the universe and everything into being by the power of his word, created it all very good, looked down and saw the first human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelled against him, right? They sinned against him all because they did not believe him. They did not trust that he had their best interest in mind. They thought he was holding out on them. And so they did not believe. They disobeyed God. And as a result, sin entered into this good creation. And it's been passed down from parent to child, parent to child, so that now every human being has this propensity to want to rebel against God, to want to be God themselves instead of honor God as God. But our great God did not give up on us. He did not abandon us. He did not just kind of turn us over to ourselves. Well, good luck. You know, you, that's what you decided. No, he, out of his free and sovereign love, he entered into creation. He came as a baby. Jesus, who was fully God, fully man, came to earth to reconcile creation to creator. And Jesus lived the life of obedience that we failed to live so that by grace through faith, his righteousness could be credited and applied to us. And he went to the cross. He died a sacrificial death in our place. The death that our sin ultimately deserved. Jesus willingly went to the cross in our place and allowed his innocent blood to be shed on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin and to release us from the power of sin, to free us. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death, and he is now ruling, reigning, and restoring all things, and he's calling creation back to himself. And when you hear of his goodness and of his glory and of his love and of his grace, the proper response is to repent of your sin, meaning to, to turn from your sin and to turn from working for your own right standing with God and to trust that what Jesus accomplished on your behalf was sufficient for your salvation. The people of God have always been justified by grace through faith. We are declared right with God through faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But maybe there are some of you this morning who, you've maybe been Christian, you may have been a Christian for years. You put your faith in Christ for salvation maybe a long time ago, but, but maybe you're in a situation right now that feels hopeless, Right? I've, I've been there. I think if we can all be honest, we've all been there. We all get there sometimes where we feel hopeless. We know that there will be seasons and hardships and trials that we will go through on this earth that will be discouraging. Be discouraging. There will be some dark days while we long and await for Christ's return when he's going to right all the wrongs, when he's going to make all things new. But while we await that, there's going to be some dark days. There's going to be days where we feel like our faith is challenged. And we're going to be tempted to fall back into hopelessness. I'm not sure if you guys can relate with this, but you know those days where you can't see how a certain situation could possibly get resolved. You just can't see it, right? I'm talking about those days where you feel like you don't have the strength to even get out of bed. 
I'm talking about those days where your mind feels so clouded and overwhelmed with all the stresses of life. It feels like life's moving and changing around you at 100 miles per hour, and you can't get a grip on what's going on. I'm talking about those days where you feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you, where you feel like you're just walking through mud. I'm talking about those days where it feels like you are out in the middle of the ocean in a boat, just rowing, and you're not going anywhere. If anything, you're just going in circles, right? I'm talking about those days where you try to look for your hope, and all you see is nothingness. There's nothing there. You try to look for the light, but you can't see it. You try to grab onto something for hope, and nothing is there. Church, when you look for your hope, and all you see is nothingness. The question is not, what do I do? The question to ask is, what do I believe? What do I believe? And church, we believe in a God who is in the business of creating something out of nothing. We believe in a loving and caring Father who is all-powerful, who commands the nothingness to be something, and the nothingness obeys. And you will find that your hope will spring up from your faith. Something will come from nothing by the power of his word. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That boat of life that you've been rowing all by yourself that doesn't seem to be getting you anywhere, at best you're just going in circles. When God calls you, he doesn't call you to row faster or to row better. He calls you to stop rowing and by faith put up the sail and let him take you home. And so if you are in a season of hopelessness, don't first ask, what do I do? But what do I believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's pray.